There is something you might call a murder mystery happening in India right now. Everyone is aware of it, but few are doing anything to stop it. Fathers, husbands, even doctors are involved. The potential victims? Half the population of India. The female half. Where did they all go? India has a deadly secret. It isn't hard to find. Walk down any street as I did throughout India and you notice something startling. In every direction you see men and very few women. There is even a place known as the village of no women. It has one of the lowest sex ratios on earth. Now look closely at the faces of these girls. They are the lucky ones. They're alive. I came to India because I heard that a million of their sisters are systematically killed every year because of a gender preference for boys. The numbers are staggering. 50,000 female fetuses are aborted every month. Since 1980, an estimated 40 million girls are missing through sex-selective abortion, neglect, or murder. You were just listening to Elizabeth Vargas from a 2020 ABC News special from nine years ago. I would love to tell you that the act of gendercide has ended in India and around the world since then, but unfortunately it hasn't. Gendercide has claimed the lives of more than 200 million women in India alone. Over 50 million women and young girls are missing from their population. Almost three years ago, I had the pleasure of attending a justice gala in which I would meet Jill Macquier for the first time. Jill is a lawyer, justice advocate, and executive director of the Invisible Girl Project. On this episode of Christians You Should Know, I sit down with Jill and discuss how we as Christians can join Invisible Girl Project in the cause of eradicating gendercide in India and the world. my friend, Jill McLeay. Jill, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Jill, what did you have for breakfast this morning? <laughs> um, I am just not a huge breakfast eater. I love brunch. I love mm. like a nice brunch. So like on Mother's Day, my husband, Brad, and, and the girls, we have two daughters um, who are nine and six. And um, they made me an awesome brunch, but like on a regular weekday, yeah, I'm not going to do breakfast. So I had a lot of coffee with probably almost equal amount of half and half. <laughs> yeah, I have just a little bit of coffee with my cream and uh, lots of Splenda. So I drink it like that and um, no breakfast for me. I'm the same way. I don't like breakfast. I had a, I have a diet Mountain Dew this morning and oh then I, beca- I become human by about nine o'clock <laughs> it takes a while for me <laughs> yeah <laughs> i want to dive in you know for the people who uh don't know you you know you have a fascinating story from being a prosecuting attorney to mm. litigator to uh you know standing before the un fascinating journey to how you got to invisible girl project so mm. tell us a little about your story of how you got to where you are today and then i want to talk more about igp mm, thank you um, you're, you're right. I, I'm a former prosecutor in Indiana and then became a criminal defense attorney actually for children, uh, which was an interesting career to have. Um, 
and uh, just really because the laws in Indiana always seek to do what's in the best interest of children. So while I was a defense attorney, my recommendation to the court would always be to, to try and um, help rehabilitate the kids who had been in trouble. And so I just found such meaning in that and, and loved that work and then did some private practice and just enjoyed being in the courtroom. Um, but I always felt like there was a little something missing because I always had a heart for ministry really as well. Um, from years at being at Canacuck camp in Missouri and then being a counselor there and going to the Canacuck Institute, um, I had this heart for ministry. And, and while I was um, particularly doing private practice and, and, and criminal defense work, I just felt like um, as a public defender particularly, um, I couldn't share my faith unless my client opened that door. And so really felt like there was just uh, almost a disconnect. Um, and I remember I, I had led worship at my church in Indiana, and um, our worship pastor said to me, hey, have you heard of this organization called International Justice Mission? It's totally you. It's the law and it's ministry all rolled into one. And this was in um, 2006, actually, and I had not heard of IJM at the time. And so over the course of really a year, got to know about IJM's work and um, really had a passion for doing justice and saw that that's what they were doing globally as lawyers. And to make a long story short, um, ultimately, I, I applied to work for IJM and was hired uh, to go work for IJM in uh, one of their field offices in India and began work there in January of 2008. Um, so that's kind of just a quick summary of the path of my career, um, going from you know, practicing law to living overseas, actually as a single person in 2008. And um, uh, my job there was super rewarding. Uh, I was getting to to help rescue people from slavery and work with government officials to ensure that the laws, <clears throat> excuse me, that the laws were enforced. I had a team of lawyers that were working for me. And so it was fun because I got to teach them how to prosecute these cases. Um, and ultimately before I left IJM, we did prosecutor trainings where we would train government officials even on the laws. So again, um, just a heart for justice and, and and getting to live out my faith while also being a lawyer and seeking justice for people who, who had no voice and couldn't do it for themselves. And if you're hearing Jill's voice, uh, she's got this sweet, kind <laughs> voice, but my affectionate nickname for her is The Hammer. Uh, because uh, if you ever see Jill talk about IGP on stage, you know she can lay the law down. Where if you leave, if you're not supporting the IGP, you weren't in the room because uh, she knows how to lock you straight down. So, uh, but with that being said, you know mm -hmm. I love your story of how you got through IJM to now IGP. Mm -hmm. What was that transition? What was the fact that kind of spun you into IGP from IJM? Sure. So uh, as I said, I was in I was in India in 2008. I was single. And my husband, Brad, and I started dating long distance over Skype um, while I was living there. And I ended up flying back to the U.S. in December of 2008. And Brad and I got married. And he took a sabbatical from his work. He's a pharmacist. And he was going to do medical camps for the poor 
and uh, during our first year of marriage. So we were newlyweds in India in 2009. And um, so it was actually, I mean, we'd been married three weeks, which is really funny. We got married in December, went over to India January 2nd to go start our first year of marriage. Uh, and by January 5th, Brad was on a train to South India because we had heard that there were incidences of female infanticide, which is the killing of a baby girl when she's born just because she's female. And over the course of 2008, just living in India, we had heard that this was going on. We didn't really believe it. We didn't talk about it a lot. You know, people weren't bringing the subject up. We would occasionally read articles in the newspaper, uh, like man throws baby daughter off bridge because he wanted a son. Um, but Brad had the opportunity um, early January to go on an exploratory trip with some friends of ours down to South India and learn whether this was really happening. And so I'm busy working and uh, doing my job. And actually it was Brad who was the one who really first encountered female infanticide particularly. Um, so in early January, he was out in these remote villages of South India and uh, in one village after the other, he noticed that the boys outnumbered the girls. In one village in particular, the boys outnumbered the girls eight to one. In 2011, Shadowline Films released a documentary called It's a Girl. The most stunning quote for me from this documentary was that the three deadliest words in some parts of the world are, it's a girl. As Jill just stated, her husband in one village alone discovered that because of female infanticide, the boys outnumbered the girls eight to one. This shows us that acts of injustice like this have a ripple effect on culture as a whole. Let me give you a few stats on how this looks in India today. 25% of women in India don't live past puberty. 27% of girls in India marry before the age of 18. And 20% of women in India are rape victims or attempted rape is practiced on them in their lifetime. These stats are astounding. It shows us that the act of gender side affects women as a whole and erodes the remaining justice that's left, causing more branches of injustice to sprout out. I think likely because he was maybe the first Westerner that these villagers had seen and they were very friendly with him and, and just were very open with Brad in describing the practice of female infanticide that did indeed occur there. Um, so he met a young woman uh, that we, we call Asha. Uh, and he heard Asha's story, particularly in this village. Asha was the 12th born daughter to her own parents. And years before Asha was ever born, her parents desperately wanted a son because of Really, the, the, the pervasive sun prevalence, or, or I'm sorry, sun preference that is, that goes on across India. And so Asha's parents desperately wanted a son. So Asha's mother um, got pregnant, again, years and years before Asha was ever born, carried her baby to term, had a healthy pregnancy, likely experienced all the joys um, that a pregnant mother has, you know, feeling the baby kick for the first time. And um, then when delivery came, she delivered a healthy baby girl. And at that point, uh, Asha's parents were so disappointed because they wanted a son and because they didn't know whether they were having a, a boy or girl. The laws actually in India prevent people 
from finding out whether they're having a boy or girl while they're pregnant because they know that the son preference occurs. And, and so Asha's parents didn't know until Asha's mother delivered a healthy baby girl. And at that point, they killed their own daughter. Uh, and so again, Asha's mother got pregnant a second time in hopes of having a son, carried the baby to term, had a healthy pregnancy. And when Asha's mother delivered her second daughter, uh, she and her husband again killed their own baby. And Asha told Brad the story in the village because Asha knew for her whole life that she was unwanted and that her parents uh, had so desperately wanted a son and didn't want a daughter that Asha's mother had 11 baby girls and they killed all 11 of their own daughters. And finally, when they had Asha, their 12th born daughter, um, we suppose that they recognized that they were not gonna have a son and so they let Asha live. And so um, Brad heard Asha's story and it was so impactful to him. He, he came back to uh, our home in India and I just remember him telling me, like, Jill, this is a real thing. Like, people are really killing their daughters. And I got to tell you the story. And, and, and we just sat across the kitchen table from each other. And I just remember, you know, the cold marble uh, under my feet and the whir of the fan overhead and, and, and just looking at my husband in, in his eyes and, and tears are rolling down his face. And we both were crying because this was such an injustice. And while there were such great organizations like IJM who were doing fantastic work to rescue girls from slavery across India, no one was doing anything that we knew of at the time to help rescue baby girls from being killed. And so um, that's where we say that IJ, IGP, um, Invisible Girl Project, was really birthed, was in January when Brad met Asha, heard her story, and then came back and told me about the truth of female infanticide, we just knew that we had to do something. And we were compelled to take action because God really laid it on our hearts. Um, I believe that day that um, we were the ones who were supposed to rise up and, and hopefully others would come alongside us at that point, um, which we have seen over the years that has happened. And praise God for that. Um, but that's really how Invisible Girl Project was birthed that day, just knowing that as believers, um, and our God, who has a heart for justice for the unborn and for, for little girls, um, values each one of these daughters that was, that was being killed, and we had to do something about it. Now, we didn't know that day, of course, that we were going to start a nonprofit called Invisible Girl Project. We just knew we had to do something. This episode of Christians You Should Know is sponsored by Honest Car Payment. In a world where buying a car is often misleading and dishonoring to God, Honest Car Payment has created a redeeming way to buy and refinance a car. Just listen to Aku and Lynette's story in Hawaii as they interacted with Honest Car Payment. Aloha, I'm Aku, and this is my wife, Lynette, and we're from Kalihi. When we first bought our Nissan Frontier, we thought we had a good deal, but yet we were wrong. Our interest was 24%. We called Honest Car Payment and got a new loan right away. We saved over $18,000. That type of money is going to change our life. If your car payment is too high, don't settle. You have options. Call Honest Car Payment today at 534-1234 or visit honestcarpayment.com. Over the course of 2009, during our first year of marriage, uh, Brad particularly just studied the issue 
of female gender side, which is uh, really basically taken from the word genocide, the systematic killing of people and uh, a, a certain group of people. And that was what was happening in India. Girls were systematically being killed just because they're female. Uh, and then over the course of that year, we actually met wonderful Indians who were doing great work to rescue baby girls from being killed, to rescue girls before they were trafficked into brothels, um, rescue girls from, from deadly neglect or abandonment. And they just really needed their capacity to be increased. And so at the end of 2009, we moved back to the United States. And that's when Invisible Girl Project really got started. And we um, started taking steps to become a nonprofit organization here in the United States, knowing that our mission was going to be to help these Indian organizations make a change within their culture to show that girls are valuable and to help end female gender side in India. If you are listening to what Jill just said, you're probably doing exactly what I did the first time I was sitting right before Christmas in, uh, um, in our church. And uh, Jill's given this, you know, she's dropping the hammer on all of us, <laughs> telling us, you know, this is the problem. You should act now. And I remember thinking, this cannot be real. There's no way. You know, and I, I had heard about babies being aborted because they're female in other countries, but I'd, and which, is, which is horrible. But I'd never heard uh, about children who are not only born, but some are even, um, even older than a baby just being thrown off a bridge, buried alive, horrific things just because they're female. And so uh, hearing this um, rocked my world, and I began to think about how do, how do we think through gender side and, and living in America with blinders on where such a crime would be heinous, uh, would, be, would be to the electric chair, if you would, mm -hmm. uh, but is completely acceptable. And I'm talking to Jill's husband, Brad. He's telling me about how this isn't just a problem um, in poor areas as well, that it's ignored uh, by wealthy people as well. So it's a, it's a justice problem across the board. So I, I went to some of my friends who are Indian business owners and said, hey, do you know that this is happening and why don't you help? And Brad warned me, he said, you need to know, people are just going to say that doesn't happen. Don't bring it up again. And mm. I was like, yeah, right. Not my friends, not my friends mm. who are uh, wealthy Indian business owners and went to talk to them and said, let's do something about it. The first one, Ethan, let's not talk about that. That doesn't happen. They, that happened mm. long ago. That's in the, the long ago history of India, but it doesn't happen now. Next one, same thing. Next one, same thing. And I just kept hitting these dead, dead uh, inroads where I thought mm -hmm. they were going to be easy layups for IGP to make these connections. And these guys were going to make magnificent gifts. And we we're going to solve the problem quickly. And I realized um, it's not only a problem, but it's a problem that's being ignored. And that's why IGP is so important. Mm. And so, Jill, you know, I think y'all, and I got to know you better, you've had some big wins hmm. and you've had some losses as well. Yeah. Um, can you tell a couple of those, maybe one or two of the losses and the wins of IGP and then kind of where you're at now, maybe some of your biggest needs? Hmm. Thanks, Ethan. So, um, you know, when, again, when at the end of 2009, beginning of 2010, when we started IGP, we had no idea what God was going to do with it and that. He was going to grow it to what it is today. And I feel like that's such a big win that we have to give God glory for. Um, we're still a small organization, but 
um, in so many ways, God has grown it. We know that this is his, we know that this is his mission. He cares about the little girls in India. Um, when we started this, we knew that the problem was serious, that it had resulted in what is, was estimated by the United Nations to be 50 million, 50 million girls and, mis girls and women who are missing from India's population. Um, they're just taken out, whether it's from female infanticide or through trafficking lines, like they just go off the grid, or um, there are little girls who are sold as child brides, you know, they they become missing at that point. And so it had resulted in 37 million more men than women in India's population, which is, is crazy. I mean, there are 37 million men who will not be married uh, because of what has happened. Well, I don't know whether I would call this a loss, but <laughs> over the past 10 years that we've been doing this, that estimate has actually gone up. So the UN estimated that there were 50 million girls and women missing from India's population. Uh, the India Economic Survey came out just a couple of years ago saying that they believe that number is now 63 million. And that just shows you how serious this crisis is in India and why um, we have to continue to do more. And so that's been hard. I mean, that's a hard number. And um, it is a loss for us in, in our hearts because we just want this problem to end. And um, with that said, though, God has been so gracious to us in connecting us with Indians, again, who are doing this work, who are on the ground, in villages, in cities, rescuing girls from really dire situations. Um, girls like uh, little Tamil Selby. So she is just um, precious. She was about 10 years old. Uh, her family was living in a slum area of Chennai, and um, her father really abandoned her and her mother when she was born because he wanted a son. And so the mother uh, and Tamil Selby were, were poor and um, living in a really poor area, as I mentioned. Tamil Selby's mother got remarried, and uh, her new husband despised Tamil Selby, was very abusive verbally because she's a girl and because she was the daughter of another man. And so he wouldn't, as Tamil Selby grew, he wouldn't allow her to go to school. She was the last one to eat in their family. Ultimately, this new husband and Tamil Selby's mom had a son of their own. And so Tamil Selby's job was to stay home and help take care of this little baby while she is just a little girl herself, like six, seven years old. Um, and having to, to take care of her little brother while the parents went off and worked. And I mean, if you think about it, that's just unfathomable. I have a six-year-old, you know, if I had a baby, um, I can't imagine my six-year-old watching my baby, but that's, that's the role that Tom Selby had. And then they would make her work, go to work. And so she would have to go clean houses uh, and, and work as a maid for people just to earn money for the family. And when she was about nine, 10 years old, um, after years of abuse from her mother and stepfather, uh, she came home late one night to where her little home was in the slum. After working all day um, in the morning, taking care of her brother in the evening, going to clean someone's house, and her parents were gone. They just picked up their things and left. And she started crying and looking around and went to the neighbor lady and, and the neighbor lady said, they're gone. They left you. 
I can't imagine that. And um, fortunately, because of our partner's work in this area, uh, the neighbor lady and others connected with our partner knew the good work that our partner had been doing to rescue girls. And so Tom Selvi was rescued uh, and put into a, one of our safe homes where uh, as a little girl, then she learned her value for the first time. She learned that she uh, was created in God's image, that she is valuable no matter what she had been taught. And uh, she was uh, given her needs, you know, fed three meals a day and sent to school for the very first time. And so stories like that are, are a win, of course, for us. Um, and the fact that we have partners like that one that are spread across India now, all over India, recognizing what the different problems of discrimination are against little girls all across India. Um, and now Tamil Selvi is 16 years old. Uh, she's in school, she's smart, she knows a little bit of English, she's healthy, and she knows she's valued. Uh, and, and over the years, over the number of different times that I have met her, I know that our partners and our staff, IGP staff in India, are teaching Tamil Selvi and all the little girls that we have been able to help rescue, which and that's a huge win that through our partners and our staff on the ground in India, we've been able to rescue over 425 little girls from being killed and abandoned and neglected or before their traffic. And so those little girls are like Tamil Selby. And they know now for the first time, many of them for the very first time, that they are valued and that they are valuable. And that female gender side in their culture needs to end. And we are working with all of our partners to make sure that all of these girls are being taught that they can be change agents within their culture, that they have a responsibility now since they have been rescued, since they are having opportunity to be educated, uh, to go do justice for other little girls in India. And that's our goal really for all of our rescued girls, that they will someday pursue justice for others. Uh, there's a young girl named Angel and she's just awesome. She is in high school uh, with uh, living in a safe home, and she wants to be a lawyer someday. She's like, I want to be a lawyer, and I want to work for IGP someday so I can help other little girls like me. And we really want that. Um, we believe that India must change from within. Uh, we always have been really mindful that we don't want to be those Westerners who come into India and say, India, you have a problem, and we're here to fix it. Rather, we want to work with Indian people to um, help them as they need and as they ask us to help, whether it's through strategic planning or funding, and um, help rescue more girls and then help those girls to end gender side in their culture, to be the ones that if someday they're married and their husband is pressuring them to have a son, if that husband says, you need to go abort uh, our baby, because I believe you're pregnant with, with a boy. I mean, I'm sorry, with a girl. We've seen that happen. We know stories from the field where husbands are pressuring their wives. Well, this is your, this is your second pregnancy. You've already given birth to a girl. Uh, I know you're pregnant with another girl. You need to go abort. I mean, just crazy thoughts like that, you know, like there's no, no rhyme or reason. We want our girls to stand up to that and say, no, we want them to be educated and, and, and to have a way to support themselves and their daughters so that they can stand up to 
selective abortion and they can stand up to the neglect of daughters and so that they can be there for their neighbors if their neighbors are being pressured to harm their daughters. We want our girls to be change agents. And so um, we know that 425 at least little girls uh, will, Lord willing, be those change agents in India and we want that to expand. And so, of course, that's always a need. Uh, we uh, send the majority of donations that we bring in to India, to the field. And so um, there's always a need to, on the field from our partners, to grow their work, to scale their work. We've seen what works. We know we have a model that works well in rescuing girls and then teaching girls their value and take, you know, making sure that they're going to school and getting an education so that they will have opportunity. We have, we believe a model that is absolutely scalable. We scale it, scaled it across India and the need is there on the field to rescue more girls. Injustice of all kinds is egregious, but injustice that takes the life of another human being made in the image of God is demonic. And because of that, this type of injustice is an injustice against God himself. As Christians, we should be about ending any injustice against the God who gave his son to save us. Listen to these words by John Piper about how we should see injustice in light of our relationship with God. If we neglect justice, if we don't care about all injustice everywhere that we see it, we're not acting like Christians because Christians care about all injustice, especially, especially, especially injustice against God. And the word especially is intended to call out unbelief among Christians. It's intended to call out practical unbelief of Christians for whom the injustices against humans ignite more passion in their hearts, in their mouths, than the global tragedy of injustice against God. It aims to call out the practical unbelief of Christians who are so anesthetized by the comforts and entertainments of the world, they don't, they don't care about injustice against man or God. They're just in their lazy boy, watching clean videos, sort of. Injustice is to treat someone worse than they deserve. And the more respect they deserve and the less we render, the greater the injustice. You with me? God alone deserves the highest respect and praise and love and fear and devotion and allegiance and obedience of all beings in the universe. Yet, 
every single human being in this room and on this planet has fallen short of this worship and exchanged the glory of God for the creation. And therefore, every human is guilty of an injustice that is infinitely worse than all the injustices against man summed up totally throughout all history. God is infinitely deserving of complete worship, trust, and obedience, and therefore in treating God as unworthy of our total allegiance, every human is guilty of an infinite injustice against God. That's our biggest problem everywhere. That's, that's incredible, Jill. And I think with what you were saying, the mission of Faith Driven Consumer is to help Christians live out their faith in their everyday life um, by providing them a pathway. We want to enable them, give them um, ways to do that. And that's what this podcast is, to introduce them to people they should know in specific areas of their life, specifically today, justice. And so hmm. how can Christians right now who are listening to this podcast, and even if you're not a Christian um, and you're listening to this podcast, how can they respond to what you're, what you're saying? I remember the first time I was sitting there, I was like, well, do I, what do I need to do? What can I do? How hmm. fast can I do it? Um, it creates some urgency because it's an urgent problem. It's a mm -hmm. it's a something that demands immediate justice, immediate action. Uh, what are some ways they can act right now to partner with you and to partner around the world to end this problem? Mm. Well, we know as believers, God commands us in Micah six eight to do justice. I remember being young and being like, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? Well, Micah six eight says, He has shown the O man what is good and what the Lord requires requires of thee, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with him. And so we know that this is a grave injustice that is going on in India. God does not want any little girls that he has created to be killed. And so we have a responsibility to do justice for these little girls. And that's what Invisible Girl Project is doing. And so we invite um, people of all faiths to jump on board. We know that this problem is so huge and, and the population of Christian, Christians in India is small. And so we work with people of all faiths in India uh, because this is a matter of justice. And uh, we know that little girls are being killed there every single day. God does not want that to happen. And so as Christians, we need to rise up and do justice. And so we invite people to um, go to our website, invisiblegirlproject.org. There are different ways that you can get involved. We look for advocates to call their uh, elected representatives to advocate um, at times for laws that, that we believe will help India make changes. Uh, we ask for volunteers and of course, because there is a financial need on the field and because we know that we could take on so many new partners, we get regular requests and go through a stringent vetting process. But the funds have been limited because we are a smaller nonprofit and we know that God is growing this and there is opportunity. And so we ask people to give and give generously for the mission of saving girls' lives. We know that Psalm 1017 says that God hears the desire of the afflicted. He hears these little girls' cries, and he wants his believers to step up 
and treat these girls the way that we would want to be treated. You know, if, if Jesus were there, would we step in as believers to save, you know, do whatever we could to save little girls? Absolutely. And so we have that opportunity through Invisible Girl Project to help save girls' lives in India. And so I ask fellow believers to join us. Um, if you're not a believer, you, uh, we ask you to, to check us out and see that we are doing work. We work to rescue girls no matter what their faith is and that our mission is simple. It's to save girls' lives in India, to end female gender side. That's exclusively what it is. We're a non-sectarian organization, but we are motivated by our faith. And we know that um, God called us to do justice, and that's why we are doing what we do to rescue girls from being killed in India. Well, you just heard Jill the hammer uh, <laughs> for, for, you know, tell you, come on, let's go. Let's be a part of this. And I'm telling you, one of the best things Karen and I have ever done, my wife, is uh, sign up to a monthly give to mm. IGP. Um, we don't miss it. Um, you know, it's it, it literally is a Starbucks a day. Um, it's a st two state dinners a month. It's it's something that you will not miss, but you will greatly change and impact the world. I also encourage you, um, to, if you have a church, get your church to partner with IGP. Mm. Um, they have several church partners, and that makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, and also, um, figure out a way how maybe you can go and uh, be a part of helping the work there. They're in constant need of the right people uh, to come and serve. And so make sure, go check them out. I will link uh, their website and our profile and all of our social channels. Um, but I implore you to give today. Jill, thank you so much for your time. Um, love you and, uh, and Brad, and so grateful uh, for what you're doing in the kingdom. Thank you so much, Ethan. Thanks for having me today. I'm really grateful for this opportunity. And um, yeah, just thanks to your listeners. Micah 6.8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. As a Christian, we believe every injustice against humans made in the image of God is an injustice to God himself. Today, I hope that Jill's message challenged you to step up and join the church in the cause of eradicating injustice with the hope of the gospel. I want to encourage you to check out Invisible Girl Project and give whatever you can to help them in their mission. Lastly, challenge yourself and challenge others to not let injustice become something we are comfortable with, but something that we must fight against. I'm Ethan Drum, and this is Christians You Should Know.